0: For announcements, uh, let's dive in here. So, uh, there's a few resources I want to tell you about today. So, there's a, a really famous psychiatrist named Ian McGilchrist. I think I'm pronouncing his first name correctly. Um, he wrote a book called The Master and His Emissary. And if you're looking for a really heavy, mind boggling read, read it, it'll melt your brain. It's really it, it's one of those books you have to read the pages over and over again, like, wait, what's he saying here? But there's also a YouTube video that does it in like 12 minutes. So that might be your thing instead of a 500-page book. But it's like a summation of the master and his emissary. And I'm going to be using... So anything that you think sounds good today, it's probably McGilchrist. It's probably not me. All right. The other guy that I'm going to be using today uh, is N.T. Wright. He wrote a book called The New Testament and the People of God. Some of the ideas I'm going to share today are are from those two guys. So I just want to give them credit. So uh, yeah, we're going to finish up our series today that we started a few weeks ago. It's called We Are Restore. It's about our mission and our culture. So our mission has been given to us by Jesus. It is the Great Commission. He says, go and make disciples. But That that is the phrase that inspires us. We we don't invent mission statements on our own in the church. We have one. Our king gave it to us. And we get to decide, what does that actually look like in our specific context to make disciples? And one thing I think that is particularly unique to the DMV, to Silver Spring, Montgomery County, one of the most educated uh, places and cities in the entire U.S. Uh, we have such a dramatic um, diversity, both economically with rich and poor. I think Bethesda, Chevy Chase are the richest cities in the U.S. Montgomery County is the richest county within the richest state in the U.S. And then we have uh, the, the, the most diverse cities in the U.S. Germantown, Gaithersburg, Rockville, Silver Spring are all in the top 10 of the most diverse cities in the U.S. It is a this is a really interesting place to live. And one thing that we see when it comes to making disciples is a lot of people that live here have experienced faith or God or Jesus or church. They've gotten a taste of it, and it's left, uh, at best, it's left a, a, just a bland taste in their mouth. Like, eh, I could take it or leave it. The first week I preached, I compared it to tasting flan. You ever had flan? If you taste tasted it once, you're like, okay, I'm good. I don't need that anymore. It's nothing to write home about. Um, or some people, I, I compared it to how I like olives. I hate olives. Right? I can't stand it. Some people have experienced religion, and that's how they feel about religion. They've got a taste of it, and they've spit it out of their mouth. And they don't want anything to do with that. And I think there's a phrase uh, that you know, Pew Research and, and, and guys that are you know, or people that are, are, are looking into the stuff that they have for these, this group of people. It's growing in the U.S. It's called the dechurched People have experienced church. And they're like, eh, I'm, I'm, I'm out. You know, it's just completely irrelevant to them. That's who we feel like God has called us to, to be Jesus to. Those are the people that many of us are friends with or family with. And uh, we want to invite them onto the journey with us. And as we go on this journey with Christ, as it, on this mission, um, I've compared it to when we take steps. Uh, there's like a cloud of dust that kicks up around Jesus as we follow him. Um, at least in the first century when they were in sandals and walking on dirt roads. Now, not so much. But let's pretend that as we're pursuing Jesus, this cloud of dust kicks up around the more and more people that join, the bigger the cloud gets. And that cloud is culture. And as a church, particularly like a four-and-a-half-year-old church, we're a toddler church, getting ready to enter kindergarten church. Um, the cloud is small, but it's going to get bigger. And we're, we're trying to figure out, okay, what, what does this cloud actually look like? What are the, uh, the uh, specifics, the qualities of the culture that are... That's forming in our church. And some of the qualities we've talked about, I'm going to do a quick recap. The first one we talked about that is sacred to us is inclusion. All right? So you're black, white, gay, straight, wherever, whatever, wherever you're from, whatever group you might be a part of, we believe in inclusion and in welcoming anybody and everybody onto the journey with Jesus. And you see in our culture, there's a lot of, and I'm not saying Restore is perfect at it, we are far from perfect. Uh, but what we We feel like God is calling us to do is to be inclusive. And that looks, uh, I think, a little bit deeper and more profound than the watered-down version that we see on bumper stickers or the cheap imitation of inclusion. Uh, The word that is thrown around a lot is uh, coexistence or tolerance. I'm like, I think we can do better than that. than tolerating each other, can we do better than that? Jesus says we can. And so that's part of inclusion, is that we think that Jesus takes inclusion to heavenly heights. We think he ramps it up dramatically. Compared to the way our culture practices it, and then we have authentic community, is one of the our cultural values, which sounds uh, fairly benign. Probably you maybe even heard that before, like oh you value community, big deal. That's like saying like you value um, daylight. Like okay, yeah everybody does, uh, but it's a little bit more. Uh, it's a little bit deeper than that and more shocking because when we think about what authentic community looked like in the first century church, it was a rebellious nature. It was a, a movement against the powers that be, against the Roman Empire, against the status quo. So when we, as people, constantly reorient ourselves around Jesus as king, it's going to stir it up a little bit. The reason the first century church was persecuted was not because they just wanted to be friends with everybody. It was because they were sticking it to Caesar. They were saying, we don't worship you, we worship the king. And there was a group of people forming around that. And Herod and Caesar and, and, and anybody that had power in the Roman Empire did not like that. And we live in an empire. We live in a place that is probably, you know, this is debatable, it's probably the most powerful country in the world. And here we sit. And we have a chance to live with Jesus as king, rather than whoever is in, the, in a position of power or political uh, power or anything like that. We, we don't... Um, We don't find our identity in our community, in our nationalism or in our political party or in our skin color or in our sexuality. We find it in Christ. And it's a really unifying thing to say, oh, we're all in that together. We may look different, act different, say different things. We may rub each other the wrong way sometimes, maybe more than sometimes, but we're all pursuing Jesus together and that's what brings us. And when we reorient ourselves around him instead of other things, Barriers and divisiveness cease. And there, we think there's something really beautiful in that. The third thing that, are, that is uh, sacred to us is justice, uh, biblical justice. And um, it, it's tough to recap that one, but I would encourage you to go back and listen to that one. But I'll do it my best to summarize it. Christians, we're, we're not involved in making laws, but we will use them and even break them when it comes to delivering Christ-like justice. And, and living that out, justice as we think, as we believe, is most effective within relationship. I've been, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. So I've been watching The People versus O.J. Simpson on Netflix. It's a good show. Um, one thing that is really interesting about, it's not like I know a lot about courtrooms. All right? I'm not an attorney. But it's, it's really fascinating how uh, professional and distant uh, courtrooms are. There is literally no room for relationship or friendship or kind words. It's almost like intentionally kept out of a courtroom. I don't know if that's accurate, but when I watch that show, who knows if that's accurate, but I'm like, Man, that's what it feels like. There's like a total lack, total disregard for any type of warmth or relational connection, and Jesus' justice has that included, and that's when justice is at its most effective. So, for example, if we want justice to be delivered to immigrants and refugees, it's going to be at its most effective if we are in relationship with them, if we are in friendship with them and not a distant entity to them. This, this is why we go to, to serve Syrian refugees. Our, our next trip is taking place in a couple weeks because when we come near, we think that justice is delivered. And then we talked about empowerment. Jesus said, whoever clings to this life will lose it. Whoever loses his or her life for me will find it. The power of the cross is its powerlessness which is, what? Like That's completely antithetical to everything that I've been taught. We're taught to grasp for control and power, but Jesus says, no, no, you give it away. Whatever privilege, whatever status, whatever power you've been given, we are called to give it away, because when we do that, other people are empowered, and we are actually empowered. Paul talks about like uh, God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. That's what he's talking about. The more that we give ourselves away the more powerful we become. Which it's like, that doesn't make sense. Most of what Jesus said uh, messes with our heads. But that is a a sacred belief of ours, is is the foolishness of the cross, of giving power away and not clinging for it and grasping for control. And then today we finish uh, with these two cultural practices, uh, scholarship and restoration. And it's kind of this journey towards all of these. And restoration is at the end, because if we practice... Uh, you know, inclusion and authentic community and justice and empowerment and scholarship, it's going to take us on a journey of restoration. And there's a lot of caricatures regarding, let's talk about scholarship first. There's a lot of caricatures of Jesus. If you Google cheesy Jesus, you're going to find some interesting images uh, or some interesting memes. I found a few of them. The first one, is you've got baseball Jesus, that's baseball Jesus. Uh, I actually have that picture in my office um, it's Jesus holding the bat with a little kid. Like, it, it's kind of that Jesus that cares about the outcome of sports competitions. All right? He doesn't exist, but people think that, that actually is Jesus, that he, you know, they pray before or after a sporting event. Like, he actually cares who wins a football game. I think he's got more important things to concern himself with. But that's, that's one example of a caric- caricature of Jesus. We've also got open, what I call open carry Jesus. It's Jesus holding a rifle. I guess if it was open carry, he'd be holding a handgun. Maybe that's like Jesus the hunter. I don't know. But I, I've seen that a lot, and that's real. That's not a Photoshop. Someone actually painted that. Like, That just blows me away, Jesus with a gun. And then my personal favorite is YOLO Jesus. You only live once. I was like, really? Watch this. I, I, I found that meme, um, which is actually kind of funny. Um, but the, you, you, go, I mean, you can go on and on and on about these caricatures of Jesus, and it actually, it's funny and we laugh, but it stems from, I, frankly, it just stems from bad theology. Like just a bad understanding of who he really is and the power that he carries. Uh, and we laugh, but unfortunately, there's a lot of evan- evangelical Christians who believe in these cheesy uh, versions of, of Jesus. There's a less than scholarly viewpoint of him, uh, and there's a, the, the shallower understanding we have of him, uh, the... the the less we're going to be able to move deeper into his kingdom. It's going to affect that. So when we read scripture, we, we have to take a scholarly approach. You know, We have to look and mind and, and realize there's 20 centuries or so between us and him. And there's been all types of habits and experiences and viewpoints that are going to shape how we approach scripture. And we have to be aware of that. And so a great example of this in uh, the first century church was when Paul gave his sermon on Mars Hill. He's talking to Jews, Greeks, Stoics, Epicureans, and and just this melting pot of different philosophies and and viewpoints. And we get to see him kind of cut through that with a scholarly viewpoint of Jesus. So we're going to read Acts chapter 17. If you want to grab a Bible, I need to grab one too. And if you want to turn to page uh, 772 in your Bible, we're going to read this speech from Paul. As our base scripture today of just what it looks like to have a, you know, just a snippet of a scholarly approach to the story of Jesus. So Acts 17, and I'm going to read verses 16 through 34. So it's, it's a beefy section here, so roll with me. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Arapagus, I don't know how to pronounce that, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Ooh, that sounds familiar. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, Also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. So there's an example of, uh, I particularly like how Paul approached the Athenians there. Uh, and use some of their language, some of their understanding of who they think God might be in order to teach them about Jesus. Just a really scholarly approach to that. And we have an opportunity to consider that in our culture. What does that look like? So understanding Jesus requires scholarship. A willingness, like scholarship means a willingness to learn on a high level. Like I want to go deep. I want to know historical Jesus Christ. Not the cheesy, maybe shallow, characterized Version of who he is in our culture. So we approach scripture as a community with what's called a critical realist perspective. It's what N.T. Wright, he kind of coined that phrase. Um, It's another way to say it might be a narrative reading of scripture. Uh, The Bible as a story about Jesus. That's the way we approach it, which is different than the two most prevalent models of approaching Jesus or approaching scripture. The first one, which is far more prevalent, is the positivist viewpoint, which means People approach it or look at it, including the church. Uh, uh, they look at it with um, they try to look at it objectively, scientifically. It's a modernist approach to scripture. It's an enlightened approach, rational. Right? it stems from the Enlightenment, and that's how it's a very scientific, objective, rational viewpoint of scripture. Uh, a good example of that, and within the church, would be uh, Calvinists. All right, everything fits very neatly together, and we can explain Jesus and our faith. In these like almost bullet points. All right, there's other examples of it, but that would be an example of this type of a viewpoint versus the other viewpoint or approach to to faith or to scripture is the postmodern viewpoint. All right, it's very subjective. It's very relativistic. It's feelings-based. It's intuition-based. It's relative truth-based. It's like whatever you pick and choose what feels good, what works for you. So it's, it's a much different side of the spectrum. And these two perspectives, and I think some of us float in between both of them, uh, they, have, they warp our view on everything. So the deeper that we go into one of those, uh, the harder it is for us to understand who Jesus is. All right. So that's why Paul had to quote the Athenians and, and, and their poets and philosophers, because he knew how far down the rabbit hole they had gone. A, and they're like, man, he's like, how can I explain who Jesus is? That was first century. That was recent this is twenty, twenty-one 21 centuries later. There's going to be more stuff that's built up that requires us to kind of sift through. So we have to realize that we might have an approach to the world and to the li- into life that might actually inhibit our understanding of who Jesus really is and what he can do in the world. So if, for example, we've gone down the rabbit hole of like enlightenment and scientific rational view of the world, we may lose sense of the beauty and the joy and the feelings of the world that exist. Uh, the deeper someone we go into the postmodernist world, where feelings and relative truth reign and experiential uh, or experiences inform in our beliefs, we miss out on the potential order and harmony that can exist in the world. So anybody who tells you, like, if you, you know, that, that touts relative truth, um, they have no idea how to achieve harmony. They think harmony is gonna be achieved by everybody wanting to do their own thing, I can't think of anything more idealistic and naive than that, all right? So they're missing out on this potential harmony that could occur in the world. Um, what we need is someone who can guide us back from uh, having our brains twisted, which has literally happened. Ian McGilchrist talks about this in The Master and the Emissary, and, that, and you can see it in the video. too. Video, uh, our, our brains are asymmetrical. They're off. It's almost like someone has twisted them. I think he says counterclockwise, and that's happened over time. Our skull is symmetrical. Our brains are not. So they are literally philosophically warped, and we need someone to restore them and to bring them back into balance. And it's, I kind of wish, like, what if we had someone who had this brilliant combination of, like, quantum physics and philosophy, and miraculous healing ability, who could administer this with like this amazing combination of gentleness and power, well, Christians believe we have that in Jesus. That's who we think he is. We think he's got all of that at his disposal in bringing us towards restoration. So why is scholarship important? Um, Because like I said, a lot of people, including ourselves, have experienced bland religion, or legalism, or just kind of a shallow, cheesy view of who Jesus is, and we want more than that. And that is when we actually look at the, the historical Jesus, it's going to lead us into a clearer picture of who he is. Um, philosopher, king, scientist, miracle worker, we believe in all of these things. He's got all of them. It's like, a, it's like this perfect combination uh, of the two prevalent viewpoints, but it's even bigger than that. So as theologian N.T. Wright and world-renowned psychiatrist Ian McGilchrist point out, we have a tendency to get fixated on one particular worldview or a particular part of our faith in Christ, and we have to be ready for our theology of Christ to expand, which is definitely going to affect our, our worldview. Um, so let me give you an example of that. So try to personalize this. What particular comfort zone do you tend to lean on when it comes to how you view the world? Like what's happening in your life? Or in culture in general what do you always come back to maybe it's science maybe you try to like explain and understand everything through that lens or maybe it's uh, a favorite philosophy or a favorite author or maybe it's your education like your your degrees you think lend themselves to a really good worldview or perspective of what's happening Maybe it's uh, Microsoft Excel. Like, you're like, if I can put this in a spreadsheet, it's going to make sense to me. And maybe you're like my dad, who's just like, all right, let's get a spreadsheet out. Or maybe you're a pros and cons list kind of person. I don't know what it is, but we have a tendency to come back to... Uh, I know one thing we all do. We all come to personal experience. We all use that as a lens. You ever sit with someone and they're telling a story... And you, the first thing out of your mouth in response is like, oh, yeah, I can relate to that because, and then you fill in a personal experience or a story. We all do that. It's not bad. We just have to understand that our understanding of the world and the events that are occurring or have happened or will happen are clouded by subjectivity. Objectivity is impossible. It is flat out impossible. And that, that's what, uh, you know, N.T. Wright talks about in, in the critical realist perspective of Scripture is understanding That's not possible. We all have a colored version of what's happening. So one specific example that I can give that occurs with me: um, I don't like talking about the weather or like small. I'm not a small talk guy. I can only take like two or three minutes of that, and my my uh, tank for small talk drains really quickly. I'm like, okay, I'm done. I like, I'm like the guy that at dinner table conversation, I want to talk about like, the things no one wants to talk about, like politics, religion, and sex. Like, let's just talk about them. All right, let's just start. I'll just throw out some opinions. And one thing that's kind of comical to me, no matter what I share, I find that people try to shove me into one of two rabbit holes. Like, oh, okay, you're a liberal or you're a conservative. It's amazing to me that, I don't know what the percentage is, but I would say roughly 90 to 95% of the people I meet uh, they, that's the hole they try to push me down. That's the only way they can think of the world, is you're liberal or you're conservative. All of my liberal friends think I'm conservative, and all of my conservative friends think I'm liberal. It's hilarious to me. I'm like, can you guys not think outside of the box a little bit here? I'm neither. <laughs> we need this in our culture, and that's what's one perfect or one example of how this occurs to me, uh, of just this loss of scholarship. Like We can really only think of the world in those two lenses, can we not get more creative than that and like maybe challenge the the, the these walls or these barriers that we've built for ourselves? Um, can you tell that annoys me a little bit? Uh, so there's a beautiful world that Jesus wants to lead us into, and we have this opportunity to like take off these blinders. All right, that like He would take them off, and we would see the the, the beauty and the peace and the joy and the restoration that can occur when we take off these blinders, or we step out of the rabbit hole and we let Jesus lead us into a kingdom that is more vast and textured and layered and deep than any of us could possibly imagine. The journey never ends. Never get bored. You're never going like, to follow Jesus and be like, all right, I've had enough. Right, he's just going to take you into these, this beautiful place of restoration. And that's where we close today, is that um, everything that we believe, being on mission or, or practicing these cultural qualities is going to lead us towards restoration. Uh, It's an effect of everything that we do with Christ, everything about our faith. So 1 Peter talks about this, uh, this potential restoration. says, uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time, cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Forever and ever. And amen, which means so be it. Restoration. It it is not some dream we have. It is not some distant reality that we get to experience. It's not like um, Jesus is not our golden ticket to a better reality when we die. It's happening right now. This is the reality that we can live into as as we follow him on the journey. And I'll go ahead and tell you this about restoration. And it's not a blanket statement, but most of the time... It does not feel good. It is going to be a shock to everything we've experienced or known. It's not. It's like pulling off a bandaid that you've left on for years, and it's like become part of you. And you just like, I got to get this off of me. That's sometimes what it feels like to be restored and to let Him take His scalpel to us. All right, we believe we call Him the Great Physician. He's going to perform surgery sometimes on our emotions, sometimes on our spirit, sometimes physically. There's got to be some healing that occurs, but it's not going to feel good. It's going to mess with, with how we feel, what we believe. It's going to hurt sometimes. Suffering is part of our faith. All right? it's, it's just following him. That happens. It might be. It might. It may not necessarily, but it might be involved in this journey towards restoration. Think about, as you know, like I said, think about surgery or physical therapy. That's, those don't feel good. Have you ever done physical therapy? No fun at all. I've done it like, I'll go like once, and I'm like, okay, that's good enough. I, I don't want to be in pain for an hour and have to pay someone for it. <laughs> it's needed. I'm not slamming physical therapists. My sister-in-law is one. But that's an example of, of restoration. So it, sometimes it just doesn't feel good. And when, it be, when it's being done by Christ, it is incredibly intrusive. You, he's going to go places like, I don't want you to go there. He's going to uncover stones that you, you didn't even know needed to be uncovered. Like, there's going to be flaws and weaknesses and, and um, brokenness that you didn't even know you had until you started on this journey with him. And he's going to start rolling them over one at a time. And it's like, ugh. And it may be, it, it, it may be stuff that has built up for years and years and years. Like, I, I, that's, that is happening to me right now. He is uncovering. There's one thing that he has been working on me for, I, I can feel him. It's like he turned over this stone. And in the, in the pit there was Anger. It's been sitting there. And he's been working on that for like three or four years and me, like, why do you have this constantly? Why is that like your go-to? It's so easy for me to get on a cynical, angry soapbox. Really easy for me to get there. I kind of live there. And he's like trying to drain that swamp right now. And it, sometimes it's like, this is good. Sometimes I'm like, I don't like this at all. This sucks. It doesn't feel good because that's my crutch. Like that's where I go. And maybe it's something different for you, but it's going to happen on the path towards restoration. Um, over the coming, uh, you know, whether it's the over the coming days or weeks or months or years, when you get to those moments, when you get to that moment, maybe it's not happening right now, but it will come. If you take the journey of, uh, you know, with Christ towards restoration, there will come a time where you question everything and you're going to want to point the finger at God. Uh, I, I've yelled at God. I've cussed God out because of it. There will come a time that might happen. Um, what my encouragement would be is to realize that he is trying to restore you and to just sit and wait and let him do his work, Amen. even when it doesn't feel good. Uh, it, it, it's a powerful experience to do that. And it's, it can be lonely. Uh, all types of, uh, of challenges can come with that. But we're about to enter a season that uh, re- reminds us of that, the season of Lent starts this Wednesday. is Ash Wednesday. Uh, Lent is this six-week um, occurrence on the Christian calendar that reminds us that suffering is a part of our faith. Jesus, it, it is the time leading up to Jesus' death. And so for the next three weeks, there's going to be uh, a specific focus on this suffering. So we're going to do a three-week series on it. And we're going to talk about, the first week, we're going to talk about how do you suffer with God. Like, how do you suffer and not kind of give him the middle finger and say, adios, I'm out. Like, how do you actually do this? And the second week, we're going to talk about how do you suffer with others? How do you let, like, how do you walk with other people who are suffering? And how do you let them walk with you? Because that can be a real prideful gut check to let someone walk with you through suffering or through pain. And then the third week, uh, we're going to talk about what's the journey towards healing look like? How, How do we heal? What do we believe about healing? How do we... You know, what does restoration look like? Because we're not going to be in the pit or in the suffering or in this darkness forever. It's, we're going to come out of it. But th- that's where we're going to go over the next three weeks. We're going to kind of walk with Jesus as he walked towards the cross over the, you know, at the beginning of Lent here. And it's big because most of us would rather numb the pain than deal with it. We would rather hide the flaws than let him reveal those. But that is a critical part of our culture and a part of our community that we believe that, We're going to be a people that will pursue a deep and uh, textured understanding of who Jesus is, and we're going to let him draw us into uncomfortable places, And because that is really good news for us and for the world, and that's where we're headed. So let's pray.